Hey everyone, welcome to Talking Force. Today we have a great guest. His name is Bo Bartone. I've been very fortunate enough to work with Bo um, in many different capacities, and especially now today as he has gone forward from uh, the public sector um, of education and into the private sector. We're going to take a trip um, through his experience, both from when he started out um, as an intern and kind of how those steps went to, you know, becoming a, you know, full-time assistant on a major D1 program and kind of some of the lessons he's learned along the way. So I hope you enjoy this. Bo, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, Coach Newman, thanks for having me on. And, uh, good to talk to you. Awesome. Hey, so why don't we just start with your kind of, you know, how you how you became, you know, who you are story. So I'm, I'm sure everything's been easy. Uh, you dropped out <laughs> of the womb. You understood how to program. Everything was nice. You've worked a nice nine to five your entire career. Walk me through kind of a little bit about those journeys and, and kind of where you are uh, today. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll, we'll kind of start with the iron bug story, which is I feel like everyone has that origin story. I know me and you have talked about ours before, but we'll, we'll let everyone hear it. Um, this kind of all started for me, I would say back in seventh grade going into eighth grade. I was always old for my grade, so I was playing with the people in the grade above me. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I was second string for a while because of that, right? So going into that last year, where I'm like, all right, I'm finally playing with kids in my grade next year coming up. My, you know, my dad was the head coach of our, our, our youth football team here. I'm like, dude, dad, I want to play. Like, what, what do I got to do? And he had played in college before and he had done some uh, bodybuilding and weightlifting in his, his career. So he was like, all right, you want to play? Like, you got to get in the gym. You got to start banging some weights around. Like you're, you're a small kid. You're, you know, you're athletic, but you know, you're a little undersized and you really want to take the next step. This is it. So let's get in. So that whole summer leading up was in the weight room, saw some great gains, you know, learn technique and form first, and then, you know, added some strength and then kind of really, really had a great season that year. And I was like, Oh wow, this, this stuff works. <laughs> so that was kind of where it all started. And that continued on throughout high school. And, um, you know, going into college, I, uh, I didn't want to play any sports because I thought it was too much work, right? It's too much time on my schedule. I want to go to college and have fun. But um, every year thereafter, while I was in high school, my father was still coaching the Cheshire Junior football. And um, I always helped him out. And he, he saw that I liked to coach. I liked to kind of mentor kids and also just love the sport of football and weightlifting. So I was going to his alma mater, which is Southern Connecticut, where he played. And he just on a whim one day, I, I thought absolutely nothing of this. Um, yeah, you know, would you ever consider wanting to coach? And I was probably like, oh yeah, sure, why not? Blah 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 blah. Like, didn't think anything of it. He immediately boop, boop, beep, called up his old coach that was still there, and it's like, hey, my son's gonna come on staff and just shadow you guys. He might want to be a coach. X Y Z. Blah blah blah. Right. So I was like, oh, oh, we're oh, we're doing this. <laughs> so first year, as you as you uh, can imagine, I just sat there and watched. I just stood there at practice and watched and just tried to absorb whatever I could sat in on very minimal meetings um, and was just kind of a fly on the wall. And then that old coach regime all kind of retired and, and passed on the baton to the younger staff, which really kind of took me under their, their wing and took me to football school, right? Learning all the X's and O's, like actually watching film, like we all know, like most high school kids aren't watching film, right? Um, and, and really learning the game a little bit and developing a love for showing up every single day with the guys, the coaches, the players, and, and really just getting into it. Um, and meanwhile, my studies were in exercise science because I knew going into, into school that I, uh, I didn't want to just kind of sit behind a desk or have some sort of corporate job. And I loved athletics and, 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 and lifting and all that. But um, so those, those four and a half years happened. 
And that's what I thought I wanted to do. And I, my studies were kind of a backseat to that um, until, you know, senior year, got to take a practicum internship. So I internshiped with you in the summer of 2017, I believe it was. And it was eye-opening because it was, it was an, a really awesome blend of coaching, football, but also weightlifting. All three of those things that I kind of loved meshed into that weight room in, in that summer. And I knew going back into my last fall, helping coach at uh, Southern Connecticut, I was like, mm, I think that's how my brain works. I think that's what I want to do. So, you know, you know, going to school, working with the football team full time. And then after that, that season ended, you know, I respectfully told them, hey, I, I think I'm going to pursue this instead. And then I worked in, in personal training for, I want to say the better part of eight months, it's like January till August or so. And that whole time I, I, uh, I've told this story to many interns that we've had in the past. As you know, I kind of just pestered you once or twice a month to see if I can come to class or come hang out, come watch lift and just kind of, again, be another fly on the wall. Cause I knew um, that was, that was something I wanted to get back to. Um, and then starting the, the summer of 2018 in August and I was drinking life through a big old fire hose for a while. So that was a good time. But, um, but yeah, I guess that's kind of, that's kind of my origin story. And I was, there with you at Yale for the better part of three years. Yeah, and I think what people don't understand is that when he says drinking through a fire hose, that's kind of a catch-all for a hot mess. So when you think about the operations, and I know some of our listeners that may be overseas, American football, the ins and outs may not be so clear, you really have this summertime, this preparatory time in the summer where things have to go right. You become the, you know, the, the head coach, if you will, uh, as the strength coach, and the strength staff plays this really important role. Well, that's a really hard time to get thrown into the mix. And so one of the things we're going to talk about today is how do you take an organization that's got all these moving parts, but make it both efficient and scalable and then also refine. And I think those are some of the lessons that Bo can kind of pass on to everyone because, you know, with 120 guys and, and mind you, we also worked with other teams at the time. We had lacrosse players, we had other sports. So you, tie, you have to really be good with your time and how you spend it, how you invest it. And so Bo kind of became one of the, the first people to really start to put things down on paper. And I think part of the reason why it was so effective was Bo really started at the, that ground level. You know, as much as he talks about he pestered me, well, you know, he would ask questions. He would also go read and he would research. And I know one of the, my biggest complaints as a coach was always people don't know their book knowledge. They don't know their history. It's always the new shiny thing on Instagram. It's the new this. It's the new that. But go into the research and really understand. When we talk about, you know, force play technology, go learn the history. Go learn where it came from. Look at all the different legacy pieces. Look where we're headed moving forward in the future. And then understand how you're going to apply it. Because misapplied or poorly applied technology or practices doesn't help anyone. But I think, Bo, if you could just kind of jump in just a little bit. And when we talk about... Let's not even just go straight testing, program design. <clears throat> when we write programs, oftentimes we see people write static. And that means, okay, I wrote this according to the information I have. I'm going to write a plan. Maybe it's of, you know, we call it the Soviet, the block style stuff where it's eight weeks, it's a mesocycle, whatever. I mean, you and I can both attest, you know, very rarely did we have multiple days in a row without some sort of disruption or reason to default. How did you kind of approach programming and then specifically how did you integrate um, maybe some of the flexible nonlinear components or some of the testing data to really refine it? Could you just kind of walk step by step through that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's 
quite a loaded question because you can kind of go down any any rabbit hole through that. So as I talk here, don't be afraid to kind of hone in on one thing that I'm talking about or ask follow-up questions. But um, yeah, I think it, it, uh, it all started with kind of going back to what you said, you kind of have to know your history and you kind of have to watch and observe and see what has led up to the current state of programs to even know how to start and where to begin and how to even think through your own critical lens that you have to develop over time, right? So, I mean, that first year that I, I worked for you, um, I, I sat there and watched and I analyzed and I did all the auditing and processed all the data information so that I could see, okay, this program worked because of X, Y, Z, or it didn't work because of X, Y, Z, but I'm not even writing anything yet. I'm just now picking up on little nuggets here and there of information that I could then further use in the future to the build my own program. Right. And, you know, I and think that's an, not to cut you off. Could you jump in and just quickly define auditing? Because this is another area where, I think maybe 10 years ago, people didn't have the power to store data information. Can you just, you know, as you finish this up, just talk a little bit, what is an audit? Yeah, no, I wrote this. And is that pre and post? Like I lifted a hundred pounds and now I lift 150 as my one RM, like that's auditing. What is auditing? And and specifically to the level um, of which you did it both when you started and then, you know, as you finished. Yeah. I mean, in, in its simplest form, auditing is just either, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, you're seeing, did your program work and why? And then how can you change it for the future to be better or to not use that program again if it was crap, right? And that could look like a, a bunch of different things. That could be pre and post testing. That could be different you know, parameters that you set knowing you want to look at before you even run the program. Okay, on X date, X date, and X date, I'm going to check these to make sure that we're still heading in the right directions. And the way you track that, like in its simplest form, you could literally just, if you're still running pen and paper, you could look at their workout cards. Did they fill it out? Did they do what you assigned them? That's like, number one, it's like what kind of adherence to the program in the first place is even going on, right? Just to know, because then if there's no adherence, then all the numbers, all the maxes, all of this and that, that's, you know, that's null and void because they're not even doing the thing that you wanted them to do in the first place. So that testing is kind of irrelevant. Um, after that, I mean, then you get into the actual numbers of it. And there's, there's the quantitative side, which is the numbers. And there's the qualitative side of things. So into the numbers side, I mean, we use Team Builder, which is, I, I personally am, am biased to that because I use it so heavily. Um, I think one of the best platforms as strength coach, personal trainer, or whatever could use because it takes all of those whiteboard workouts, all those paper workouts, and digitizes it and makes everything the flow of information is just insanely faster and more manageable and efficient with your time. And we talked about time earlier, right? How do you be efficient with that? That like, that is the number one thing you're always trying to chop at and get back as a strength coach or honestly, any walk in life. That is the number one commodity that kind of have. Um, but where I was going with that is team builder is, is just, it, it allows you to pull up all the information when you have 180 to 120 kids, depending on whether it's off season, preseason, during the season, it allows you to pull up all of their numbers, check on that adherence. Are we even filling out our cards in the, per, in the first place? And then how do we then go and combat that to make sure that what happened in the weight room is reflected in their workouts, in their result com or their workout complete logs. Right. And then after that, then you can start getting into the dirty details of like, okay, this person is in, this situation, his goal today is X. Did he achieve that goal based on this number, this number, this number? But then you could also go even deeper than that and be like, okay, 
he filled out the numbers that he was supposed to do. But then comes the sort of the qualitative is like, as a coach, now I'm thinking back, how did his movement look during his last set of a double on squat? Okay, check the notes that he attached to the exercise. How did that feel? Because then you might have prescribed, I don't know, call it two reps at 85%. He looked like crap. He could have done one more rep. Well, yeah, it says 85%, but we all know if you're damn near two rep max, you're probably somewhere in the 90s. So now even what's reflected on paper isn't reflecting what happened in real life or the, the load that was on that person's body. So you can really kind of go down the rabbit hole um, in all of that and, and be as in-depth as you possibly can. Um, and that's where you get into, I think, kind of referencing the late Charles Poliquin is like getting into programming. He, he found at, through a ton of trial and error that individualization of programming is the way to go to the best detail that you possibly can do it. Um, so if you're not auditing, you don't know how to do that. If you're, if you don't even know how to get people to adhere to your program and then how to check the numbers daily and weekly, I, I, I'm a big proponent of daily auditing because even if you go a week, things can fall through the cracks and then you miss. And now that's a whole week of training that may not have been bad, but could have been a lot better. Um, Sorry, sorry, rambling there, but I hope that answered your question. No, no, and I think it's it's spot on because what people don't understand is that there is never – I could not ever think of a week where you came up to me and said, you know what? Everything went to plan. Numbers were perfect. Absolutely no distractions with college males. Absolutely perfectly hydrated, perfectly recovered, and everything smooth sailing. When we talked about that you know, dosing of the exercise because exercise is medicine, it's a day-to-day thing. And <clears> – <throat> I think we had a podcast earlier where Eric had, Eric Renan mentioned that, you know, if you went in with a cough to the emergency room and they put you in a cast, you know, that doesn't address the cough. Like, and that's really a really funny way to think about it, but so true. And, and understanding that every single athlete, both quantitatively and qualitatively have different needs. And I, and I laugh when you, when you talked about the, uh, did they fill out their workout card in a world of everybody searching for data analytics and just because they say it, you know, a thousand times. Well, if they're not filling out their workout card, that's the most important data analytic you need because either A, they don't respect you, B, they don't understand, you know, their program. And so how do you expect them to have intent? And I think that's what's, you know, so important is regardless of the style, the skin or approach that you take, you have to have buy-in across the, across the entire um, organization. And we use testing quite a bit. Um, if you want to talk a little bit about maybe some of our DEXA stuff or some of our um, laser testing, and obviously we've talked about force plates as well. Talk about how did you find that balance between not being overly nerdy, uh, maybe to an interior tackle that doesn't really care um, about their force velocity curve, but you as a coach knowing how important that is. You mentioned they could have squatted more, but it looked like crap. And, and we tend to say at Hawken, there's productivity measures and then there's strategic or strategy metrics just because you can, should you, you know, because you lifted more weight, you know, did you compromise the longevity and the durability of the individual or the joint? And so you have this dichotomy, the yin and yang that you're constantly go trying to figure out, but you're going to need data to make that decision. So can you talk about some of the, the data you use and how you wove it in and both how you used it, you know, either for yourself or the coaches or how you explained to it with the athletes? Yeah, um, I guess I'll kind of start big picture and, and go in a few directions from there. 
But I mean, at, at the end of the day, your, your testing has to help you make decisions. It can't just be number chasing, right? You could test your squat or your bench or your whatever ego lift or your, your 10 yard dash, whatever it is, or your vertical jump every other week, every two weeks to keep chasing numbers. But at the end of the day, you have to figure out a system that allows you to make decisions big picture wise. So that would be your one rep max testing. Okay. Where are we at with strength at the most important part to measure that in our off season, in our season, whatever it is, where you at speed and power. So going from that, then you have different layers of testing everywhere in between that, that you're, you're not going to test that one rep bench every single week, every single month, but how do you know through maybe it's the volumes and the tonnages of your program or different testing parameters that you can do on a more frequent basis to at least kind of check engine light. Okay. Where are we at? And in litmus test, okay, where are we at? So you kind of know the trend line and you should be able to at least with a little bit of certainty predict where you're going to fall on that testing day. There shouldn't be really any surprises unless there's random injuries that come up. Um, so oh, go ahead. One, one of the things that I'm laughing about is the number, how many times did you and I walk into a meeting with a sport coach and they'd say, so-and-so is not good. They're not doing well. And we'd be like, you're correct. And they'd be uh, like, yeah. how did you know? They haven't done any workouts. It's this goes great... back to filling out their workout cards. Out card. did, they, did they do it or not? Because we did don't they know. take the medicine or did they not? Or, you know, maybe something else. But I, I, I laugh because when people say, I can't believe we had such a bad, I had a bad testing day. Like testing days are dead. Like the idea that you're going to have this once a year, four times a year, quote unquote, test day that's going to define whether or not they've done it. You know, if someone's been training hard, you know what their mm -hmm. training logs look like. There's really no surprises, you know, because that body of work, it's a cumulative density of work that they've done ideally over the last week, the last month, or maybe even a four year career. So I just laugh when you say that because I still still makes me puzzled when I see coaches say, well, we have testing day. Every day is a test. Every rep is right. a test. And I just don't think people necessarily connect the dots with that. And, and that, that word test or that act of testing is insanely tied to what we were talking about in auditing. Because if you're doing your auditing, that's that's your predictive formula right there of how testing day is going to go. And you know, obviously, you're not going to predict, is a kid going to get 0.2 faster on his 10-yard dash or his pro agility, whatever it is. No, you're not going to be able to dial it into that smallest detail. That's why you do some of those bigger picture testing on speed and whatnot. But you're going to be able to say, this kid's not going to be significantly worse. I'll tell you that right now, because you've been monitoring their progress. They've been going hard on the program or not. And you could say what direction they're heading. Um, so that's kind of that, you know, and then in terms of how you talk to the athletes, I think a lot of young professionals coming out of the field and myself included, I am not exempt from this. They want to, they want to flex their, their muscle that they used or that they learned all throughout, all throughout school and all the crazy jargon and this and that and the other thing. But it's like, it's a people business. And these are 18 to 20 year old dudes who smash skulls for a living and, and throw pigskins around. So you got to talk to them in that manner and kind of translate all the nerdy stuff that you know and love in your head into like, how does this make you play better on the gridiron? Okay. Well, you see that guy over there? He's smaller than you. You're bigger than him. He might be faster, but it's a game of physics. So if you get your paws on him and you're bigger and stronger, you're probably going to win. Versus if we're a DB and then you're talking about, okay, why is how, or you're talking to a coach, why does having long limbs it be an advantage to you? 
okay, well, coach, like think about it when you're in coverage, if you have short little T-Rex arms, if you can't reach out and swat the ball, or if you can't at least touch and touch the receiver at the line of scrimmage to get a jam on them in some situation. Okay. That is why limb length is important. And then same thing. If we're talking about DNs or linemen for the bench press, right? Okay. Coaches might freak out. Oh, but his bench is only, you know, X, Y, Z, but linebacker benches 50, hundred more pounds than linemen. Okay. Well, coach, you got to kind of like walk that through you, you know, that there's a formula in physics that talks about work. I believe it's in the measurement is in joules of the, the weight that's being moved over a certain distance in a certain time. So that lineman is going to be forever at a disadvantage because of his limb length compared to the linebacker. But that doesn't mean that his bench press number isn't effective. So there, there's a bunch of different ways to look at it. And you have to know what is the motivation of the person across from you? And how are you going to communicate this in a manner that's going to make sense, but also helps them understand and motivate them to then look for that new number or look for the way to get better at whatever you're testing for X, Y, Z. Yeah. And I think that the coaches have to understand because coaches do not care. Like they, the weight room is a byproduct of a necessity that has to happen. But what they want to know is that the people are getting better and specifically better at a task on the field. So we could look at, uh, I don't know, an isometric hold. We could look at a squat. We could look at a hand clean. We could have lots of numbers. But when you're talking to a sport coach, you need to use the numbers that are going to drive change on the field and then kind of leave the other stuff out. And I would even go so far as to say you have to read the coach. I mean, you and I worked with a head coach that absolutely loved data, loved to sit and talk shop. And then we've had other coaches. They just want to know red, yellow, green. So more of a stoplight system is better is that they're entrusting you to, you know, do your job and that, you know, after a given period of time, they're going to come back. They're going to be quicker, faster, more durable or whatever the attribute is in the sport profile. But they really don't want to know more and actually telling them more makes it worse. And so figuring out how to do that. And, you know, I think about what's magical about data is you can look at the numbers as a, as a strength coach or someone in sports performance you know how things are going to pan out. I won't say the name, but I know watching this fall, looking at some of the players, you know, that you and I have worked with at Yale, there was an individual that, you know, we moved a different position. We looked at his muscle numbers. We gained some muscle. We knew his twitch. We knew how to put on, um, you know, some muscle mass. And we, we knew specifically how his force velocity curve was going to be. And he's actually doing very well this fall and watching, you know, him buy into the program. And, and it's tough too, especially in a time of Insta everything. You know, people want to lift and get better tomorrow. When you're talking about long-term athletic development, it's pretty hard to have faith in the process. But to see it to come to fruition um, and, you know, win awards and do all these things, we knew that was going to happen in the data. Can you talk a little bit about how you were able to use muscle um, at Yale? I know that was one of the things that I fought very hard for was to get the, the DEXA scanner. And anybody who doesn't know that, the DEXA scanner is a full-body x-ray that tells us down to the gram our muscle mass, our fat mass, um, and our bone density – we made our own metric throughout time and throughout also, you know, speaking to other individuals and looking at research, we had it down to a chart that within about five pounds of muscle, we could tell whether or not the individual was going to be uh, elite or they were going to excel or they would have a durability problem. And when I say that muscle is armor, less muscle, less, uh, less resiliency when it comes into the traumas. And you're just kind of rolling the dice depending on the quality of the muscle uh, that's genetically given to the individual. But Bo, I know you really... That was your deal. And I remember your first workout that you wrote a rehab on an ACL program and you did incredible. And that was kind of your gateway. But using muscle um, as a driver is huge. And I just I don't really see a lot of teams doing that. 
And I, and I know you did that very well. Could you kind of walk through how you use that metric? Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of like one of those bigger picture metrics is kind of getting to the lowest hanging fruit that's going to help your athletes succeed the most on the field. And given that we are in D1, but it, it was kind of that FCS level in the, in the Ivy League, we're not going to get every single recruit that's at weight, that's at muscle, that's at strength. So you have to know how to build them up to that, whether it's they're a developmental freshman or whether they need to play right now. What is the lowest hanging fruit that you need to attack or that you can attack to help them be successful in that offseason and then on the field? Um, and a lot of that was muscle for a lot of these kids. And a lot of that was also outside the weight room and just eating like just you need to eat period. If you're going to gain weight, it's a simple equation. You got to put more in than you're putting out. But um, yeah, I mean, we tested and correct me if I'm wrong. I believe it was three times a year uh, for the DEXA. It was preseason. It was um, postseason. So right after our season, whether it was in December or January, um, I forget the exact day. I think sometimes we even did both. And then after our, our off season. So that spring semester before spring ball hit, um, were our kind of three big tests. And there might've been one more test in there. If, if a couple of guys slipped through the cracks and got sick or couldn't make the day or whatever, it, whatever it was. But, um, and again, those, those were kind of our checkpoints, but if you're auditing, going back to that kind of tying it back together, if you're auditing, you're checking the tonnages, you're seeing the progression and it's consistent again, you're probably going to know the trend of where these kids are going to fall on test day. I, I think uh, <laughs> to back off that is that, you know, we did measure the tonnage. And I think for people that don't know, tonnage is simply reps times sets and, and you know, looking at that total work move. So if I have 100 pounds and I lift it 10 times, you know, do the math, and then I did it three times. So that's, you know, 1000 per set and then 3000. If that volume trends up, um, and you can either lock the reps or you could lock the sets. Um, and we start to see that come up, then we're doing um, a greater amount of work in a given time. We know that the general adaptation for that is muscle. And, and just for people to be totally you know, clear and understand, when we talk about our January to March, kind of that would be your, your hypertrophy time during uh, college football uh, offseason, we put on anywhere between 350 and 375 pounds of muscle on typically 75 to 80 guys. So this was not, we're not putting on a pound of muscle and I can already hear people clicking away, getting ready. You know, that's not possible. Um, it is. And we didn't do the testing ourselves. That was through the school of medicine. And it was year after year, we would, you know, fall into that 3.7, 4.7 range. And, and again, sometimes individuals that were young that, you know, were somatotyped as mesomorphs that hadn't really eaten, hadn't had access to a training program, type 2 fibers, they could really explode. Sometimes they wouldn't gain any muscle in the freshman and sophomore year because they weren't strong enough because they couldn't get enough work capacity. And so then it was really the junior and senior year where they got their act together. But, you know, ideally being able to put on 15 to 22, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but we had someone come close to 26 pounds of muscle. And, and for everyone listening, a pound of muscle is like a pound of gold because now you can apply that in. And Bo really got to the point of being able to look at an individual and almost in a bodybuilding-esque style, being able to put the clay in certain areas uh, of the body to reinforce it. And then the injuries speak for themselves, how much those went down. The on-field performance of you know, winning in 2019 and, you know, owning individual records and team records. Um, and a lot of that, I was very fortunate as a director to have someone who really kind of made that his thing. And, and I know you use different styles. You mentioned Coach Poliquin. What were some of the other styles and skins that you found to be particularly effective, specifically as it related to um, uh, muscle mass? Yeah. Um, well, first, talking about just 
gaining muscle in the, in the first place is there's, there's a few different routes you can go. There's the metabolic pathway, which you're going to talk about kind of moderate loads somewhere between, you know, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong on some of these percentages, if I'm not directly quoting them correctly, but um, somewhere between like 65 to 80% ish for that moderate load at a short rest. And then there's the mechanical pathway, which you're probably talking about heavier weights. You might talk about some eccentrics where you're really, really kind of focusing on tension on the muscle at a heavier load over long durations of time. And that long duration of time might just be a 10 second eccentric for two reps. So there's, so there's different ways you can go about it. And you have to figure out what is going to best suit the athlete in front of you, right? There are some people who maybe that short rest protocol might be great for them, but they can't buffer right now. They, they're not going to be able to go through the workout and hit the tonnages, the total weight moves throughout the workout that you need them to hit to even get an effective stimulus for muscle growth in that plan. So then you really have to back it up and look, okay, how do, before we even put them into this plan, are they ready for it? How do we prep them for that? Whether that's through just a lead up block of two, three weeks, whatever it is, or through some conditioning on some bikes or whatever it is to get their capacity to even hit the loads they need to in the workouts that you're prescribing for them. Now, if that's not possible because of certain constraints in the academic calendar, and maybe they're away during winter break, whatever it is, okay, now, now how do we get down to the nitty gritty of like, what's going to work for this person and what capacities can they currently hold within a workout to get the most effective stimulus? And that's, you really kind of have to pick out your, your kids that you need to go down on a rabbit hole for and, and figure out what that is. So, you know, the most of our team was on a short rest protocol, but there are a couple guys who, while looking at the numbers, you know, the past couple of years, they were, their adherence to the program was great. They were eating, they were this, they were that, but like, I hate using this word because I don't know if it's insanely true or not, but they were, you know, quote unquote, non-responders, I guess you would say, right? It didn't work well for them. It wasn't the optimal stimulus for them. So diving into it, it's like, okay, so we tried the metabolic pathway with these guys. Let's try some of the mechanical. So doing your research, reading up on some of those, those ways, and then like figuring out, okay, this kid, he's a very strong squatter. He's had hamstring kind of things in the past. And I think, you know, who I'm talking about as I'll kind of unwrap this a little bit. Um, but the short rest protocol doesn't work for him and whatnot. So how can we develop a program that a he's fired up about, right? Like this is a program for you, right? So that's probably going to drive a little bit of motivation adherence to the plan as well, but that's also going to address some of the weaknesses in those low hanging fruits. That's going to allow him to gain muscle in areas that he doesn't necessarily have, or these had weakness in, but also be more productive on the field. And, um, for this kid, he, he really landed on the mechanical side of things. And he pushed some heavy weights at lower reps with, you know, kind of a moderate rest. And after that block, he gained, uh, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but he gained a few pounds of muscle, which he hadn't in that same time frame the past two and a half years. And then his hamstrings felt the best they ever had. So you really kind of have to dive in and figure out, you know, who are you working with? How much time do you have? And then what is the number one thing, right? Pick one to two things, not even two. pick one thing that you really want to focus on and go all in on that. Otherwise you're probably going to be spreading yourself a little bit too thin and kind of just doing a bunch of who's do what's stuff just for the sake of, you know, quote unquote training. Yeah. And we would talk about all the time is there's training and there's exercising. Exercise is great. You want to flop around and sweat and have a good time and do different movements. Awesome. But when you talk about training, about bringing someone from their, you know, homeostatic baseline and bringing them up to a super level, you really have to be careful because as we've mentioned before, because you can doesn't mean you should. If an individual has overdeveloped their tissues and their quadriceps, 
but they haven't done anything on their backside, that could be a problem. Conversely, if their lower body is super strong and they can run really fast, but maybe their upper body, their shoulder girdle hasn't been reinforced, as soon as they smash into something at 20 miles an hour, well, you know, suddenly now the legs were great, but the shoulders not. So having this ability um, to both look short term of, you know, what can I do in the next six to eight weeks and realize you are not the only thing, especially if you're dealing with a college or high school level athlete, you're competing with school stress, sport coach stress. If you're in the private sector, you're dealing with clubs, you really have to have an honest conversation. And Bo, as you alluded to, you pick one thing. All the time, people would write a program. Well, it's a little bit of this, it's a little bit of that, and it's a lot of bit of crap, and nothing really changed. And so we would look at an individual and say, they need to get strong. Okay, well, in one month, let's bring their 1RM up and their back squat 100 pounds. And the coach would say, well, they're not really conditioned. No, they are not. That is correct. That was not our goal because we saw that there was such a massive deficiency in their squat strength because of their size and because of their relative body scores. That's where we needed to put our focus on. I think young coaches should be really, really confident when they pick their training goal and stick to it. And obviously, mm-hmm. you mentioned day-to-day. Is it working? Is it not? Um, are there things I can modify? The individual, as you're talking about, we had guys that just responded really, really well to angles. I know you haven't really um, jumped into that, but one, again, one of the things we were blessed with was Dr. Kramer would come and visit and talk about angles. Every three degrees range of motion um, is a completely different stimulus. So it's a front squat, it's a back squat, it's a toes in, it's a bench, it's close grip, it's angles, it's playing with that. And that's again, goes back to some of Ed Cohn's work that goes back to some of the stuff that Poliquin talked about three exposures and change. Um, that was particularly effective and just realize you've got a general scheme on how to approach this stuff. But really, if you're not looking at your workout logs, I don't know how you make the next day's, you know, prescription. Yeah. And, and kind of going into that, I think, um, my, how I, my critical lens of programming comes from definitely first and foremost, Dr. Kramer. Uh, that's where I think I try to analyze and see most things through it is kind of like my, my bullshit test is like, okay, does it fit within some of these very well-known general parameters of strength and conditioning and, and the science behind it? Okay. Yes or no. And then you go from there. And then after that, I've, I've read a bunch on, on Charles Pollock when he's one of my favorites in, in terms of who to read up on, whether, especially when it comes to muscle and then also strength. Um, and then, you know, when, when you're talking about angles, Pollock was, was a huge proponent of that. Dr. Kramer is a huge proponent of that. And I haven't done as much reading on Louis Simmons uh, material, but I know he's also a huge proponent. I mean, sometimes he switches, he switches his main lifts every two to three weeks. And like, that's something that you don't like, Oh no, we're going to bench. Like we're, we have a six week benching block. Well, some of these guys have really figured out like, to either stimulate as much muscle or strength growth as possible and to mitigate because you're not ever going to avoid mitigate injury or the creech as we called it at Yale when guys kind of start rubbing their elbow or their shoulder like, yeah, I don't know about that. And then you figure out maybe it's bicep tendonitis because they're benching their, their heart, their freaking hearts out left and right. And they're benching um, back in their dorms. That was always and they're and they're doing <laughs> dip, and they're doing they dips. Doing they're doing dips. They're doing push-ups. You know, a hundred a day and all this crazy <laughs> stuff. But um, but under, understanding that really really has helped to kind of drive some of those muscle building programs. But then also understanding that each muscle group or therefore lift has different timelines of recovery and how much volume you can put on that. For example just recently. And then we use this a little bit. This is, this kind of started at Yale when you had us write one of these programs is understanding how to train for bigger shoulders and stronger shoulders. Cause we had a bunch of 
offensive linemen who they do a lot of horizontal pressing, you know, our vertical pressing could have been better. And was it mobility? Was it strength? It, we, we certainly needed to dive down the rabbit hole and, and get into that more, but um, their shoulders are a very big source of how they play football and where their powers from. They constantly have to be striking against another human that is sprinting at them, or they're sprinting at the other human and striking them. So that needs to be rock solid. So how, how can we address that? And we just looked at our guys like qualitative is like, yeah, we don't have big shoulders. Like we don't have armor there. We can't protect them as much as we need to. Like, yeah, they're strong in bench. Like, okay, they're strong in a horizontal, in a vertical row, a lap pull down, a CDK row, a barbell went over row, whatever. But all those ancillary muscles and those kind of stabilizers and supporters just weren't there. So like, okay, dive into it. Like you have to do a shoulder program. Okay. Shoulders can recover a lot faster than your legs after a back squat, because that back squat is over a long range of motion. You're going to probably going to do some heavy loads, especially if you're a 300 pound lineman. Right. And the volume that you're going to do on there is going to be very, very different than the volume you do on a lateral raise on a YTW for your rotator cuff. And you're going to have to have some time to recover, especially if you're doing heavy squats or even not heavy squats, but high volume squats, you're probably going to need at least, you know, 72 hours to really then hit it hard again versus your shoulders. Talk about a lateral raise. You're not going to really go down the mechanical pathway because there's not a big stretch when you're doing that, right? There's not a lot of load, so You're not getting high tension. So you have to go down the metabolic pathway. So you got to burn those suckers out, but they're a small muscle group and there's not a lot of weight. There's not a lot of tension on them. So you have to figure out, okay, how do I overload the top of the range of motion? How do I overload the bottom of the range of motion? Do I add a twist to it? Do I not? What kind of angles can I play with to get the whole spectrum of the entire deltoid, right? It's not just side. It's not just front. They probably get a lot of front from benching. So figuring out where you need to go, but then what is the timeline for that? Cause you could write a program and it's like, oh yeah, we're working on shoulders. We got shoulders on Monday and Friday. What if they're rested by Wednesday? You can get in extra volume that they're going to be recovered for that Friday lift again, as long as it doesn't interfere with maybe some of those bigger lifts that you're getting to the overhead presses of the world and whatever else you're doing for those shoulders. So you really have to kind of dive into the person. What is the goal? And then like, what are the recovery timelines of the muscle groups we're trying to attack? And then how do I pick up their weaknesses? Like going back to Charles Poliquin, I saw, I was reading one day on, on one of his, his articles or his books, he does a lot of, of hamstring curls with toes pointed in to attack the medial hamstring. I tried it for myself. I cramped within like three reps. I tried, we tried it on a couple of guys, just warm up sets. All right, let's turn our toes in cramped weak as hell. Okay. There's a weakness we can attack right there. And that's just an example of how those little angles that you don't think about make a massive, massive difference in the big picture of the athlete of your program. Yeah, and I think if you're listening, you should go try that. Go either supine or seated hamstring. And single leg is a quite an adventure too. If you you know you don't need a lot of load, but just try with single leg. What a difference those articulations can make, and specifically not only as it relates to tonnage, but also to as it uh, relates to the connectivity. Sometimes individuals just can't do it, and so you start to think about it as like, wow, we can get really specific. As you mentioned, the shoulders. I mean, how many times did we do strongman work? Things in three planes whether it's a mace, whether it's an Indian club, whether it's a cable, whether it's whatever, you start talking about the shoulder has the most degrees of freedom, well, you better work it. And so if you start thinking about that and you're just pressing, pressing, pulling, pulling in one plane, there's a huge opportunity for improvement. And then also anecdotally, 
when you send your kids home for the winter break, and we were told this by, as you mentioned, Dr. Kramer has been a huge influence on us. Do the bodybuilding stuff at home because they're not doing hang cleans at 72% or they're not lifting at one point, whatever. They don't even have access to bar velocity stuff. Let them do a meathead workout because they're probably going to a Gold's Gym. They're probably hanging out with their buddies. And also, anecdotally, the compliance is through the roof. They enjoy it. They never get to do that stuff when they're at home or when they're in the weight room with the college coaches. And sure enough, the program that is done is the program that's most effective. So anybody that sits there and writes a single leg foam roll and this and that, they're not doing it. And if, you know, you can get them to record a video of it and send it to you, you know, good to you. But most likely they're skipping out on their prehab. They don't really like stretching. And if you can get them to voluntarily do it during that time, that's really kind of the battle. And so, you know, Bo, as you alluded to, you know, they're, they're able to hit more frequently on some of those mechanical angles um, that don't get touched just because there's not a lot going on there. Um, and I would also like to point out, you're not able to really push your bigger development stuff if they're not recovering. And there is a point, and I don't know whether it's at the novice or the intermediate, where really you can you can write the best program in the world, but if they're not getting their hydration, they're not getting in their calories, they're not getting in the proper nutrients, you just notice this roofing effect and then they plateau out. So they're not going to gain any more muscle. They're not going to really get that much stronger um, because they're out partying. And honestly, I mean, I can't tell you enough I mean, I can't tell you how many times I had to have the conversation with individuals it's like you have to choose what's more important, developing or, you know, crushing beers. I mean, you can do that your whole life, but you've got something special. You know, we're in the summer, we're in the winter. You know, these are the different things that, you know, you can do in order to, um, you know, make yourself better. You have to choose to do it or not. Yeah. And, you know, and those are all the things that you don't learn in school. All the other program variables that are outside the weight room whether it's the social life, whether it's they have a test that week, whether it's they're going home and they're more likely to do a bodybuilding style bro workout than they are a very technical hand clean or whatever it is. Those are the things that you don't learn in the textbook that you don't learn in the classroom. So I'm a massive, massive fan of getting an internship or getting an entry level job where you can just sit and learn those things because that you don't think about that when you're writing a program in your senior year of college for your, your final exam or your practicum, you're thinking about rep sets and percentages and how can I be as scientifically, you know, this and that as I possibly can. So I think that is a massive, massive, uh, massive missing piece in how young coaches can really, really set themselves apart. Agreed. And I, and I think what made us so special is I, I was spoiled to have you, I was spoiled to have the rest of our staff. I mean, we, we've had TJ on, we've had Brandon, coach, Rachel, coach Wayne, we had, just a, an incredible group of interns um, that made it possible. And when people would walk in, I mean, when I tell you, you might walk into a single team lift and have 15 different workouts going on. You might have uh, an entire, you know, indoor, outdoor, you know, uh, training session going on in parallel. You might even have recruiting days. You know, you might have a, a football camp that you got to go and do recruiting and talent identification on. But to run that was really hard. And so I think, you know, again, you know, while we have you here today, I'd love for you to break it down. And by the way, anybody listening, I was so spoiled. I didn't have to do any of this organizational stuff. Oh, was an incredible wizard uh, of this room control uh, concept. And, and he did it masterfully. Um, couldn't have done anything at Yale without him um, in regards to that stuff. So uh, could you just kind of break down, you know, let's just, let's just hypothesize, let's just have a hypothesis here that maybe I come to you and I'm like, Bo, I need to run these 10 different plans. They're coming in. You know, we have three lifts back to back three. Uh, it's an hour a piece. What are some of the ways that you've approached room control from a system and kind of management perspective? 
Yeah. And I, I guess I'll start because I will kind of say that my brain, my, my brain, my brain is kind of wired this way. Um, I'm, I'm very apt to more logistical operations and it just, my brain is very uh, organized in that matter. But I, just, just like training uh, a training program and writing a program or writing a program, there's, there's not just one or two things you need to think about there. It's, it's really kind of like a multi-layered approach. And um, there's, there's a few considerations you start with. Okay. Like, is it even feasible for us as a staff, whether it's our size or our staff's capabilities, plus the interns capabilities, if you have interns to even be like, can we do this effectively? Again, it goes back to adherence. If we can't run this plan and the kids can't do it because we can't coach it or we can't manage it, we're not running it. Because like you said, it's not effective if, if you're not adhering to it. Um, so, so you start there, you start with, okay, who do we have to work with to run this lift? What are their capabilities? And then you start assigning out roles and responsibilities depending on that coach's ability, whether they're a senior or an intern coach, right? And then uh, I think one of the biggest things is, is communication, right? And that's a, a huge buzzword. You got to communicate, you got to talk, but like, you just got to do it. It's not talking about doing, it. you just have to do it, but then you have to plan it. You don't just talk in the moment about how to figure things out. You need to prep your butt off the whole time. And there, there's a couple things that, that we always kind of fell back on or talked about when it came to communication is a, or even just planning a lift or planning anything was Murphy's law. So you have to anticipate what will go wrong, can go wrong in your preparation. So one of the concepts I taught you guys was one throat to choke. And that comes out of corporate where oftentimes you'll get a group of people, you'll have a lot of things to get done and people try to help. And so they try to help by doing other people's jobs. They try to, you know, Say, oh, you know, Bo, I'm, I, you know, I finished early. I'm going to do Bo's job. Well, Bo doesn't know that I'm doing his job. And, you know, the conversation that I, as the director, had with Bo before the lift is I want it done a different way. Well, now the person helping is actually doing it the wrong way. And so you get this awfully frustrated, uh, if you will, log jam of communication. We're very good mm -hmm. intentions, um, but it's not getting done. And then the other thing is you'll have sometimes junior leaders will say, yep, I'm in charge. I'm in charge of racks one through four. I have to clean the weight room or I have to do whatever. I'm going to delegate someone to do it. Well, the person that gets delegated doesn't know how or isn't capable of doing it. And then as the head coach, you come back and you say, okay, where's, you know, the report? Well, I told Bo to do it. He didn't do it. Well, that's not Bo's fault. If you were tasked with the job, that is your job to do it. If you can't do it, you need to come back to me. And so the, that concept really helps especially new groups or people with a wide capacity uh, of abilities properly figure out what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Yeah. And, and yeah. It, it makes people more effective because we would have every six months new coaches jumping in as interns and they could have had multiple you know years experience and masters or they could be an undergraduate who's a sophomore who doesn't know anything. So right. how do you do that? So when you get assigned something, you do it to your fullest. If you can't, you ask for help, but you certainly don't pass it off. And then you don't blame others for your shortcomings. Right. And, and I think the example that I think of is there, there's clear, clear lines of communication set out before the lift for us as senior coaches and for the interns to us or to the players. Right. So what, what I think about is so many times, like I'm at racks one through four, you know, say coach TJ was at racks, you know, five through nine. Coach TJ then is working with just rack nine for a little bit, but there's a problem at rack six that the intern now cannot handle because they're, they're not cleared to spot. They're not cleared to change a weight or whatever it is. So they see me, I'm not in the rack with a particular athlete at one time. They come over, Hey coach Bo, can you help me out with rack six? Okay. What is that line of communication? 
you're in coach TJ's section. I don't know how he runs, wants to run rack six. So I'm not going to then go step on his toes and say something that might not be in alignment with how he wants that athlete to do said lift or said, you know, logistical operation, maybe they're switching racks, whatever it is. So that's one, one example right there of who is that line of communication that you're going to and keeping it that way. And at the end of the day, if you have someone come up to you, ask you to do something that isn't your designated job, refer out to the person whose job it is. And maybe you just have to slow things down. Maybe you just have to wait, right? Because at the end of the day, sometimes whether it's, you know, a heavy weight or it's an exercise, sometimes the best rep is the one you don't do, right? Instead of the one that you're pushing through just for the sake of getting it done for the speed of lift, because you have a deadline of, we have to be out of this room by 10 50 because the next team is coming in at 11 and they need their five minute warm up or whatever, the, whatever it is. Right. So that, that's kind of one of the examples I, I think about when it comes to communication flow, you have to set those lines up ahead of time, plan them out. Who do you go to for X? Who do you go to in this situation? And then if that doesn't work, what do you do then hit the stop button? call it a day right there and wait until someone can then make an effective decision. Right. And you know, the great thing, as you mentioned, you can always lift more tomorrow and you can't unlift a broken back. You can't unlift someone getting crushed under the bar. And again, depending on your staff, your staff's capabilities, how long they've worked together. Cause sometimes you could have a bunch of great coaches in the room. They're just not really vibing with each other. So it makes it kind of awkward. Um, I was so spoiled because essentially for all intents and purposes, I had five head coaches. So I could get really, really specific. And as you alluded to, you know, racks nine through 12, Coach TJ is going to work with these individuals. He know he's prepped their history. He knows what their tonnage is. He knows how much they're going to go up, how much they're going to go down. He may also know that we've talked to the sport coach and this person's going to be a starter next week. So we're going to play the under and be super conservative. And the level of detail we were able to get into was a testament to everything that you guys did. I mean, some mm-hmm. of the most fun that I've ever had professionally was on the floor. We're in the thick of it. And, you know, I always felt like it was a video game where we're trying to hit these tonnage goals or we're trying to hit these speed goals or we're trying to hit these different kind of KPIs and not in a sense of, as you mentioned, chasing numbers, but we were very, very confident that our training stimulus was going to have a specific outcome. And it was very rewarding each week to say, yep, you know, this individual's, you know, worked on their nutrition and wow, look at the decks of they, you know, dropped 12 pounds of fat and gained you know, 10 pounds of muscle, that's awesome. Or you know what? Their vertical jumps up two inches in season. That's great because, you know, really, if you're tracking the logs and you understand how your stimulus is going to create an adaptation, as you mentioned, they didn't get worse. They should get better. But then that, that testing day or that testing element is a celebration. It's not this fearsome, oh, my God, let me catch and see who's out of shape. Because let's be honest, yeah. a lot of the fitness tests are fatness tests. Coaches are trying to catch kids to see, oh, who didn't train, who didn't, whatever. And that just has to go by the wayside. It should be right. a celebratory time of you've put in this work. Let's rejoice in all the sacrifices and effort that you've done, particularly during vacations or breaks, and make it fun. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of want to go back to your your um, your example that you were, you were trying to drag at me earlier of, you know, you have three hours to get in these 10 different lifts and, and whatever, and kind of talk about those considerations a little bit. So all we did so far was talk about like the staff. Okay. Who, who do we have? What are the capabilities? What's going to be the flow of communication? Okay. okay. Now during those three hours, who's in those lifts and you have to start putting bodies in places, putting bodies at racks. And what are some of the things you have to think about? Like, okay, how many racks do we have? How many people can we put at a rack? to a, be able to get through their workout efficiently. Okay. If it's a strength lift, you're doing, you know, six sets of three, six sets of two, whatever. 
you're probably not going to want three or four people at a rack because that's going to take them forever with all the plate changes and with moving back and forth. And within that, you have to try and pair people up based on their strength numbers. So that's another layer to it. But going, going back to how many per rack, how many per rack, like, all right, are you doing a stationary lift? AKA they're going to stay at that rack. If you have that type of setup in your weight room where the cable stack is there, their dumbbells are right there that we had and their barbells are right there. All their equipment is in one place. Are they going to stay at that rack? Or is it going to be more of a conveyor belt style of, of training, right? Which is some of our short rest protocols where they have a bench station, a squat station, uh, whatever station, and they go down the line. So that's, that's one. And, and that stationary is traditionally you're laying that out. You're putting bodies at racks and assigning them before the lift. That's a traditional lift. Now with flexible nonlinear, that is a stationary lift. When they start their lift, they go to that rack and they stay there for the duration of the time, unless there's an equipment failure or whatever it is, but that's not decided before the lift that's decided after the warmup, after they've kind of gotten some of their testing metrics. So how do you then assign people to a rack without being able to prep that an hour or two hours before the lift? Well, then that goes back to your roles and responsibilities with your coaches. Okay. These number or these people with this goal of the day are going to go to this coach and it is your job to divvy it up based on their priority level to these five racks. Okay. Strength is going to be on these four racks and XYZ is going to be on these five racks. And that might change, especially in flexible nonlinear, because you have no idea what the numbers are going to say, which is the beauty of the program, but it's also a lot of work, right? So those are kind of like your stationary lists. But like I said, conveyor belt. Okay. Now you're talking about really working kids into pairings or twos or threes. So then you're talking about, okay. If they're saved for the sake of the example, they're squatting, they're benching, and they're doing a lat pull down. Just three quick, easy examples. Okay, what do you have to think about to pair them up properly at those racks? Number one, height. They have to be able to use the same J hooks and crash guards for squatting. And mostly if they're taller, they're more likely to have longer arms. So same thing for benching. Okay, what are their strength numbers? or they're just their working numbers. Okay. How close are they going to be in between sets? Because they're quick changes. They're going from one athlete to the next because they have short rest protocols in there or short rest uh, in between sets. How, how fast do you have to change those big monstrous plates when you're pulling off 25 kilo plates and then throwing on another two plates? And do you have the manpower to be able to do that? Can you use other athletes? Can you use your interns or your staff? Can you do that safely and effectively? So you have all these things go into it. Um, and, you know, outside of that, so you have the stationary, the conveyor belt is like, you have to think about their personality and who they're motivated by or who they don't vibe with on the team. And, and how do you make the weight room flow, not just logistically operationally, you can make that as sound as possible, but you don't want to just like suck all the fun out of the situation. Guys want to come to the lift and have a good time. Like they're stressed about school. They're stressed about, you know, X, Y, Z. They got to go to practice later. It's a Tuesday. It's a bloody, we used to call them bloody Tuesdays because they lasted for like 48 hours, which doesn't seem possible, but it is on a Tuesday, trust me. Uh, but you want to instill a little bit of fun in there. So, you know, maybe you, you pair up the classic uh, struggling freshman with a senior who's a leader and who knows how to motivate people in X, Y, Z, or, and you, you want to keep your troublemakers separate, but if they're not intentionally being jerks, they're just having fun. You don't want to completely tear that away. So maybe you put them three racks away from each other instead of right next to each other or instead of an opposite room. So like they can still look at each other and bust like a two second dance move in between sets, but they're not like having a full fledged dance party at the same rack and then they get nothing done. Right. So it, it really is a balance of how can you make this weight room the most efficient it could possibly be, but not just be like a conveyor belt of like Ford motors where we're just like 
you know, hurt, like getting cattle through the freaking the line and just in just making it like a factory operation with no emotion. It, it's got to be fun and it's got to have a little bit of liveliness to it. But it all comes down to the efficiency and effectiveness of your program and how much you can adhere to that is kind of like, I guess, going back to that big picture we were talking about. Yeah. And, and for people who have a hard time envisioning this, when we talk about our short rest protocols, plate changes literally look like a NASCAR pit crew. It's bzz, 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 in off, you know, clips off, boom, boom, boom. And you might have to go from 475 down to 225 to 315 to 505. You have to do all these different changes. Um, and it, 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 it is taxing and you need to have a crew to do it. And I think, you know, Bo, you bring up a great point of, you know, how do you go and take a weight room that is very heavy, is very serious and you want to have fun, but you don't want, you know, somebody could just be having a bad day. Right. And, you know, they don't want to spot that well or they don't like who they're paired with. And so you have to run that line of risk reward and then also safety. But you also want to make it fun. And I think, you know, we were we were pretty spoiled there. Um, our athletes were so good. The, the football team in particular, they could go and dance and hear a great song would come on. The music's blasting, but then they could lock in. And I know there's, you know, people say, should you have music? Should you not? Should you whatever? Watch a game. They, they get hyped. You want them to be able to have the switch of going from fun, high-fiving, supporting each other, but then lock it in and be able to auto-regulate their max to, you know, the nearest five pounds. That's a trained aspect of the weight room that I don't think a lot of people pay attention to. It shouldn't be like the military. It is a privilege and it is a, an opportunity to make yourself better and your athlete should want to come in. The biggest thing you can do to punish an athlete is just don't let them lift. And you know what? If your team's not good... And, you know, you have these players, because I know, especially if you're turning a program around, what if my best player doesn't lift? Well, shame on you if, you know, your best player can actually be still more productive than the individuals that are buying into your program. I remember speaking with our head coach at the time, Tony Reno, and then we talked about getting to a day when I first started back in 2016, where you'll have to lift or you won't keep up. Like you just physically can't keep up and, you know, there were no 300 pounders and I, I don't know what this year's number was, but I mean, we had a lot in 2018 and 2019 and 2020, um, you know, even during the pandemic, we had individuals doing an incredible job because that's how committed that team was. And so I think it's a real testament, but also too, as a young coach, be careful that you don't try to be Mr. Drill Sergeant. Be careful that you don't try to bark orders because I'll tell no. you what. We were very fortunate to, to learn this from uh, General McChrystal when he came to visit us and talk about leadership. It all comes down to relationships. You shouldn't have to, you know, crawl up somebody's butt on a Tuesday to get them to buy into the weight room. Now, freshman, first year, summer, they don't know anything from up and down. Yeah, that's a little different. You got to train them right, but it's a very short window. Uh, until you get them to buy into you, you're not really going to see the progress that they could actually potentially make. Yep. No, I, I agree hundred percent. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of science, there's a lot of physiology, but like there's people involved. So that is the denominator that it is a relationship driven business and the efficiency and effectiveness of your program and of your relationship with the athletes moves at the speed of trust at the end of the day. Do they mess with you? Do they like you? Do they trust in what you're telling them? Because at the end of the day, they just want to be good at their sport. They just want to go out on the field and have fun and win games. So how do you translate that into the weight room, into your conversations with them to get them to be their best self on the field? And it's not easy. And I still think to this day, um, that is the hardest part of the industry to learn is the emotional intelligence side and the relationship building. And, and how do you kind of hold it down on your end where like you have to have some rules of the weight room. Otherwise, it's, it's kind of got to go to chaos. 
but it's, it's a balance between, okay, we have these rules, but how do I not feel or sound like that military drill sergeant? How do I make it fun? How do I make it serious? That's it's, it's, it's a very complex blend of, 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 uh, relationship building and communication that is not easy to master. And you're always kind of figuring it out as you go. Couldn't agree more. Well, while we finish up here, could you just tell everyone where you're at now? I know, like I said, we spent a ton of time together um, in the college setting, but uh, you were fortunate enough to get a position now that I know that you are proud of and, and you're crushing it there. Could you just tell a little bit of, a bit about where you're at now and how you've applied some of the stuff from college to private sector? Yeah, sure. Um, so the company I'm at right now is called Future and shout out to them. It is honestly an incredible company that I'm very, very lucky to work for. Um, and the transition was, was definitely different. It, it has a lot of parallels to college training conditioning and just coaching because at the end of the day, again, people are the bottom line. I am still working with people and clients. So like you have to be able to have empathy. You have to be able to relate to them and talk to them. And doing that is very, very different because when I'm in the rack with the football player, I can see them. I'm there with them. But right now I'm training my clients virtually. So I've had to get very, very good at asking questions and, you know, sending them messages through text. Or sometimes I'll even say, screw it, I'll record a video of myself saying something to them or asking them a question because text is kind of a lousy form of communication. You can't see body language. You can't hear tone. You can't get out as much information as fast. So that's, I think, one of the biggest transitions is, um, is definitely how I communicate. And, and I've had to do some reading on this or, and wanted to, to be able to, you know, get the information from my clients that I need and then to be able to motivate them and help them be their best self, right? Because now, now the one rep maxes aren't in the bench or in the squat. One rep maxes is like, yo, I can fit into this shirt that I haven't worn in 10 years. Like, that's awesome. And honestly, I've been pleasantly, I was a little bit hesitant. I'll be perfectly honest. And I've said this to a, a couple other people at my company that I've talked to is like, I was hesitant to like, how excited am I going to be for this? Like for some of these wins. And it's like, I've been pleasantly surprised. Like it's, it's been awesome. It really has like helping a client lose 20, 30 pounds, whatever it is, fit into those old pair of jeans. Like, yo, like that, <laughs> that's huge because at the end of the day, it's, it's, that's excitement, dude. They're, they're winning in some fashion, whether it's on the field or in your personal life, that, that has been really, really awesome to see. Um, and again, it was, it was a pleasant surprise within myself. Like sometimes I get just as amped for a client that is able to do some things they weren't able to do, like stand at a concert and not for three hours in the mosh pit and not have back pains. Like, yo, that's sick. Like, <laughs> I don't care if we're freaking winning football games or not. Like you're enjoying your life more. And so I, I think it just comes down to, you know, helping people. And that's, what's, what's really kind of helped drive me and, and is part of my bottom line of why I, why I got into this field. Well, that's awesome. And for those people that want to reach out maybe for training, maybe for just mentorship or anything like that, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Yeah. So, I mean, they can go straight to our website. This is just future.co. Um, and they will find me on the coaches page there. Um, I'm not very active on social media. I like to play that as a spectator sport um, just because I think there's a lot of fluff on there and I kind of like my private life to stay my private life, but uh, you'll definitely be able to find me on, on the website of future.co and then we can chat it up. Awesome. Well, coach, thank you so much. So proud of you of what you did and what you're doing. And uh, again, too, I know you'll continue to pay it forward both to your clients and to future coaches. Thank you so much for coming on today. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Yep, thank you so much for having me.